One of the ways that we glorify and bring praise to God is by trusting that his word is gonna work in us through the spirit. So let us pray as we ask God to help us do that this morning. Triune God, grant us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. It is through Christ our Lord that we pray. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to our Old Testament passage this morning in the book of Amos. We have arrived in chapter 4, and this morning we will be reading verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. Our responsive psalm this morning continues us through Psalm 119. We say responsively verses 33 through 40 today. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Turn away from the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Our New Testament passage this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3. This morning we will be reading 13 verses beginning with verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms 
according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Here ends the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Amen. Technical difficulty here, I apologize. At times, I think that it is really a struggle for us to fully grasp what the benefits are to us of being in Christ. Most of us, we've grown up with the idea of being a Christian, and it's just the way that life has been for us. And then on top of it all, we have very busy lives where we're busy trying to figure out how we're going to manage everything and not give up too much sleep, right? This is the lives that we have. We're, we're trying to figure all this out, and so we rarely stop and embrace the truth that because God has saved us and that we have been saved by his grace, that we are co-heirs with Christ. And in our modern world where we really have very little interaction with suffering, we we really like our climate-controlled environments. We, we like our big-screen, high-definition televisions. We rarely take the time to think about ultimate things because the next series that we want to binge-watch is available or there's something else to do. There's so much for us to be distracted by. And I have a firm conviction that this is why biblical worship is so important for us in our modern day. It has to be a part of our modern lives because in worship we are reminded of our sin, we're reminded of God's grace. In other words, worship causes us to take the time to think about the ultimate things that we don't normally take the time to think about. The things that our culture tries to avoid the things that distract us, the things that get our attention. But worship helps us to frame our lives in such a way that we, we can embrace the truth of the gospel and let that be what directs and shapes us. And it lets us remember the promise so that we can fully partake in it. What Paul wants us to do here in Ephesians is to embrace this gospel and live in light of it. And in our journey through Ephesians so far, we've seen an overarching theme. In Christ, we have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not only a personal matter, something that we focus on personally, but it has ramifications for the church too. We're not just friends who happen to be in the same building on a Sunday morning. Instead, we're brought together as God's family, regardless of who we are or where we're from or who our family is. We're united to each other because we've been united to Christ. That's an important theme for us. In a world of division, to speak of unity and unity in Christ is powerful for us. And as we start in chapter 3 today, we're going to see this same theme again, and Paul is going to really drive home how significant this is for us. 
And we need a quick reminder as we start out with this passage because Paul has thrown in a for this reason as it starts today. And the reason he is talking about here is going back to the idea that God has brought two people together. He's made them one. The two have become one in Christ. And we saw last week that the temple wall that kept Gentiles out, that was torn down in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Paul wants them to understand that Gentiles are no longer outsiders, but, but they're insiders. And he's building up a new temple, a temple made of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they're the people of God, Jews and Gentiles, all people together in Christ. And this idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go to the Gentiles is a part of why Paul is writing this letter. He's a prisoner. I've seen people in jail. They don't have much to do. So Paul writes a letter. The story of Paul is unique because he is taking the message of the cross outside the confines of the traditional area of Israel. Now, when Paul was brought to faith in Jesus Christ, he was charged by God to take this message to the Gentiles. And there are a lot of reasons that this made his life, shall we say, very interesting. It required travel that was not necessarily easy. There were no cars, no planes, no buses. Then when you, you get to where you're going, you have this message to proclaim about the God-man who paid the price for sin and he rose again. And salvation is in him alone. And he alone is Lord. And that message isn't popular today. And it was even less popular in the ancient world. I mentioned a few weeks ago that in the Roman Empire, you could get by with pretty much any regional cult religion. As long as you said, in addition to my religion, Caesar is also Lord. You, said, you would say that? You were fine in the Roman Empire. But Paul would arrive in cities, and he had a proclamation. Jesus alone is Lord. And that would get him arrested. If he would have just hung around in churches in Israel, chances are the Roman Empire might have let him be. It was sort of off in a backwater part of the world. Sure, he would have had to deal with religious leaders in Jerusalem, but instead, here Paul is with this gospel message causing a disruption all over the Mediterranean. He's a problem. And he's writing this book of Ephesians as a prisoner. He is on house arrest in Rome, but he still hasn't given up this mission, this mission that God has given to him that he has been charged with. Now, how contrary is this to the way most people would act? We know Paul's story, so maybe we're used to it, but let's think about it. Paul sees suffering as a sign. Not that he's doing something wrong. He sees suffering as a sign that he's on a mission from God. His arrest is a part of what he has been charged to do. I'd, honestly, I'd probably give up. I think it's either too hard or that this must be a sign from God that, that I'm doing something wrong or contrary to his will, so... I'll just keep my mouth shut and, and stay out of jail because God clearly doesn't want me in jail. 
But contrary to what I would do, Paul is absolutely convinced that what he is doing is the clear mission that God has given him. He doesn't question his mission. Instead, he goes as far as writing about salvation through Christ alone as he is in prison for preaching salvation through Christ alone. And he promptly informs us why it is that he's so persistent in proclaiming this gospel. God showed grace to him. He revealed this mystery to him. And the mystery that he's speaking about isn't one that we would hire Scooby-Doo, Shaggy, and the gang to solve. This is an important mystery. This is a deep mystery. And it's about the scope of the gospel. The mystery has been revealed. It's been revealed to Paul. And so what he's saying is the mystery has been solved. And it's because of this revelation that he's received that he has this special insight into the mystery of Christ. We can see why it's spoken of as a mystery by Paul because he says that it was not made known to people in other generations. This is something new that is going on. Now Paul isn't claiming that he's figured out something special, that he's all, that's all about him, that he has figured this out and other people haven't. That's not what he's saying. On the surface, we, we might actually ask in reading this, how is this different from any cult? Cults claim special revelation, right? I mean, most cults have one thing in common. They all claim that everyone before them had it all wrong until they showed up and finally understood what the Bible really taught. And that's, but that's nothing like what Paul is trying to do here. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that, that the way that God chose to reveal himself was different, but now the fullness of God has come. The fullness of what God was doing in the world was hidden. But then something happened. Jesus happened. He, is not, he was not someone who was telling us how to interpret Scripture differently, Jesus wasn't. Instead, you could say that Jesus was actually helping us to understand Scripture. He wasn't interpreting it differently. In fact, he was even turning it on tighter. Think about some of the things that Jesus said. He didn't soften the law. He made it worse. He made it harder. We could all say we haven't murdered, but when Jesus says that we've committed the sin of murder when we've harbored anger in our hearts towards our brother, suddenly we understand what the law of God is trying to tell us when it says you shouldn't murder. And we can probably say we haven't committed adultery, but when we think that, oh boy, have we ever lusted in our hearts, suddenly we're all guilty. And so Jesus hasn't changed the Old Testament. In fact, he's made it more stringent. He's made it more difficult and so, what Jesus was showing us and what Paul tells us is that what God was doing in Christ was saving us. He was showing us through his teaching how badly we needed a Savior. And the Savior that we need is the one that Scripture has pointed to all along. So Paul is not saying that everything needs to change. Instead, he's saying that it's fulfilled in Jesus because of what he did in his death and resurrection. That's the mystery that Paul now understands. We can see what Paul is telling us is true because the message he's proclaiming matches with all of Scripture. 
from the very beginning of the Bible. We see it pointing us to our need for a Savior who would destroy the work of Satan and who would cover the sins of the people. And this is why Paul says that this message has been revealed by the apostles and prophets. This message is not different than the message of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of it. The mystery's been solved. Now, I think the best way for us to try and grasp this concept is, is to think about movies and their sequels. You know, sometimes now, doesn't it seem like everything's a sequel? Like we've run out of ideas, and so we just have to make sequels and remakes of everything. And so I think we kind of all come across a sequel. And we've probably seen some bad ones because most movie properties have had multiple installments. Now sometimes we view these follow-up films, these sequels, and we find them to be nothing like the original. You're not even sure what the movie is, is trying to do. It changes the way the story works. It changes the characters and how they behave. It just feels off. And then you get some other sequels. And I would say there, I would say these are good sequels. We would call it a sequel because it's a different film, yes. But the story, the way the story is told, makes it feel as though you're watching the same story that you saw before. Everything just fits together. It flows naturally. Yes, it's a new story, but it's the same story. And that's how the arrival of Jesus on the scenes is shown to us in the Bible. It's a new story, but it's the same story. The New Testament authors go to great lengths to get us to understand that this isn't something entirely different. It's the same story being fulfilled and perfected. And this perfected story started out as a mystery, but now it's been revealed. And what is that mystery according to Paul? That through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Gentiles are heirs with Israel and members of this one body that Paul is continuing to persistently talk about here in Ephesians. God revealed himself to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. They were the line of people who led to the Messiah, but now the story, it's been completed, and it's possible for even Gentiles to be reconciled to God. And it's vitally important that we understand why this has happened, why this is possible. It's because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That changes everything. It fulfills the laws that kept the Gentiles from God. It's the blood of Jesus that makes people clean, not rituals, not rules. And this is earth-shaking news that this book of Ephesians is about. And like I always say, I think we miss this because we're so used to it. But for the early Christians, this was so significant. Most of us have had something happen to us that was rather substantial, and we can't believe that this happened. And maybe you even woke up the next day and you woke up and you're like, did that happen? Wow! This news of God's making Gentiles heirs 
right along with the Jewish people, is like that. It's a wow moment. It's unbelievable. Did that really happen? And it's part of a reason, part of the reason that this is such a big deal. Because now the Gentiles share in the promise of Christ. This isn't one group having a higher priority than others. As Gentiles, we don't have a different inheritance than Jewish Christians. We have the same one. Everyone, regardless of where they were born, who their ancestors are, everyone is on the same level. Someone who's a descendant of a particular tribe of Israel is not a more important part of the body of Christ than you are. Everyone operates at the same level. And this gospel, this, this story, is what Paul is made the minister of. He's imprisoned because of it, but that isn't going to stop him. He knows that this is from God. He revealed it to him as an apostle, and he has clearly been blessed with the ability to teach and proclaim this fact as he continues with what the ramifications are for us as we are in Christ. The whole point of the story is that God has done what God does. He takes the least likely, and he makes them his servants. Look at what Paul is saying here in verses 8 and 9. He describes himself as the least of God's people. And why does he talk this way? If we go to the book of Acts, it describes Paul as breathing murder on the early church. He persecuted the church. And he also describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was obsessed with the laws and the rites and rituals of the Jewish faith. And now look at what he's doing. He's proclaiming Christ and him crucified to those that he previously saw as unclean. Talk about a plot twist. The one who persecuted the church is now proclaiming Christ. The one who thought Gentiles were unclean is obsessed with bringing them the message of salvation. He is proclaiming Christ and him crucified regardless of who they are. And it all comes back to grace. It's all about God forgiving and redeeming his people because this isn't the idea of a human because we would never think this way. This is God's idea and he has revealed the riches of Christ to people regardless of their ethnicity. And it's the job of Paul, the apostle, to make this plain. We can see this as we look at our Bibles this was clearly the job given to Paul because such a significant portion of the New Testament was written by him. And when we read those books that he contributed to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that he is obsessed with explaining this mercy and this grace and the fact that it goes to all people. And as we look at this verse, we might ask an important question. Why was this a mystery? Why did God keep it hidden? Well, in verse 10, we see an answer. In other places in Scripture, we read that Jesus came at the fullness of time or at the appointed time, and we can speculate why that would be. But we're pointed to a reason here that can help us to understand. God is wise. He is God. He chose the time. Whether that was because of the ease the gospel could go out 
in the early first century because of the scope of the Roman Empire, or whether it was some other reason, God ordained the time in history for Jesus to come to that specific time so that through the church, rulers and authorities, even those in the heavenly realms, would know his wisdom. This would kind of be confusing, this idea of rulers in the heavenly realms. But remember back to chapter 2, to the beginning of chapter 2. We read there that those who are dead in sin used to live according to the prince of the power of the air. This isn't a new concept being interjected here by Paul, but he's going back to this idea that there's forces that have power in this world, but the power of Jesus is greater. And the wisdom of God is greater. And it's being shown to everyone, even to the evil of the world and those who are under the control of that evil. In other words, even the world can look at the church and see that God is doing something amazing. He's uniting people under the cross. And God's wisdom in saving and uniting his people shows that the entire universe is under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. His saving work is powerful, so powerful, in fact, that it saves sinners. And then it unites them together, and it makes them one body. What a story. And we see here, as this passage concludes in verses 11 through 13, that this was always the plan. It was the eternal purpose of God to unite people under Christ. What we see here is that the curse created chaos. The world was broken. Death entered the world. But the disorder and brokenness don't stop in the garden. If we follow the story through Genesis, what do we see? We know the big stories, right? Cain murdered his own brother. And so family relationships are broken. And at the Tower of Babel, families are separated. They're scattered because of rebellion and sin and unbelief. But as the story continued, one family was called out, the family of Abraham, and, and that family was made the people of God. And it was marked by the descendants of one family through whom the Messiah would come. It was about genetics. It was about who your ancestors were. This was the marker of whether or not you were a child of God. And we also read that there was another marker, what we talked about last week, circumcision. But now, what we're reading here from Paul is that all of this disorder is being undone. The marker for those who are in the family of God is faith. It's those who are in Christ. And the big point is that the curse is undone through the Lord Jesus Christ. The separation has been repaired and through the Spirit and faith in Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence, the Apostle tells us, because the barrier between us and God has been torn down. The people of God have been brought back together. The life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is restoring what was broken in Eden. The story has been turned backwards. And this message is so important and so significant that once again, Paul, Paul has no qualms about his imprisonment. In fact, it is showing the world the power of the gospel, and it brings glory to God and to the church. 
And that's where we reside today. As we step into the world this week, this passage is truly relevant for us. As we look at the world, we see so much division. I thought about listing the ways in which our world is showing division. I started a list and then I realized some of you want to watch the Super Bowl tonight, so I stopped. Joking aside, we know that our world is divided. Division exists in the world. And as a church, we have the opportunity to exhibit unity that actually means something. And we do that by centering on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the authority of God's word. We stand strong on God's law and on his gospel. The usual things that that cause division in our world, and we know what they are. They fall to the side when we center on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we consider that we are saved by his grace and that he has blessed us with his word, none of the worldly divisions matter in here because we've been united in Christ. The world is broken, and it's going to be broken. It's the world. It's under the curse. And so may our unity under Christ be a witness to the world. May who we are together, united regardless of who we are, show the world that in Christ there is unity, that we can have unity when we unite under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. True unity is possible because we've been saved and we're God's people and we partake in his promises. We know that we are God's family and trust that our lives and our witness in the church bring glory to God and that we may be used of God to bring glory to his name and that by the word and by his spirit, more people would come to faith and be brought into this family of God. We're united in Christ. Let that be a blessing to you in the coming week, knowing that whatever is going on in the world, at the cross, we are united. Amen.